Well, welcome everyone to the 51st Fireside Chat. We're starting off today with some of the questions that have been left behind because of time schedules on our Fireside Chat. So we're going to start off with those, something a little different. And then we'll proceed with the people who are here present for the questions. So the first question, Tom, is from the one on rules in the LCS. I'm interested to know more about the rules in the larger system. Tom has mentioned in the past getting hauled before a judge representing yourself. What are the rules? What are some sanctions? Do you have to represent yourself? Can others make submissions on your behalf so there's no prosecutor, just you and the judge? As a legal scholar and someone interested in our criminal legal system in Canada, this interests me. <laughs> okay, let me bring back that memory and that experience uh, of being hauled before that particular uh, judge or judges. Um, yes, there were people that could speak out on your behalf. There were also people who would speak out uh, um, not in your behalf, let's say on the on the opposite side of your behalf against you. So there were uh, there were those who could speak out on both sides, and yes, you did have, um, you know, it's, it's not like you had a lawyer, but um, you did have an advocate. So there was there was advocates that uh, kind of spoke for the positive side, advocates that spoke for the negative side, the the pro and the con, and then there were those who just kind of shout out uh, when they had something they needed to say. And that uh, it seemed like a little bit of an unruly process kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, the British government where in their parliament, you know, people can can uh, can holler out and there's a bit of a of a see who can grab the tension of the floor sort of thing. And it worked like that a little bit. But it was. Uh, it was representative in that way, so it wasn't just me. Matter of fact, I was pretty much quiet the whole time. and. Um, only spoke when spoken to, I guess, pretty much like most people that are uh, sitting on a on a witness stand, uh, um, kind of the subject of the spotlight. So, yes, there was some process going on there. It wasn't just, just me and a judge. But the judges could do something that judges here in our culture can't do, and that is they were able to go back and look at the uh, databases and see exactly what took place. And those databases weren't just limited to this uh, virtual reality we call our physical universe. Those databases covered everything else as well. So it was one of those situations where there was no point lying. You, you could have you could have a, a a point you know you're trying to make, and others could have negative points that they were trying to make, but there was never any question of exactly what was said or what happened. That was that was known. So that made it a little different than the kind of, uh, you know, the, our, our legal system has a big struggle trying to figure out just what the facts are and who did what and why. And in this case, who did what and why was all perfectly clear. Uh, the record could be checked. So if some people claimed that, you know, things happened that didn't, then all they did was undermine their own credibility. So that made it a little different. But yeah, there was a, there was a process going on. Okay, that's very interesting. I guess there is such a thing as the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. All right, the next question is from 
Ape Slave on NPC Theory. Tom, I respect your work and am very grateful to your prevailing efforts. Every day I can't help but feel overwhelmed at the factory farms, animal abuse, and suffering of all life. When you talked recently about how an abused child is taken out and turned into a non-player character in the LCS, I felt like that was great, but too convenient. Your idea that the LCS operates as a game programmer would have it. Efficient code and rendering only what is necessary has left me hanging logically. I feel it is our responsibility to consider that out of sight and out of mind is a little too convenient when cows, pigs, etc. are being mutilated, plus all the other horrors. Where before believing the NPC theory, that's a non-player character, would one act now that they have a mental soother to comfort them and potentially become inactive in the name of justice and love? I just need help with this because I feel severe empathy pain and I'm constantly overwhelmed by the apathy of others. I hope I've read that clearly enough. Okay. Um, there's a couple of issues here. Um, the first being is that you have to learn to accept things the way they are. And by accept, I don't mean like it. I just mean accept that they are. You know, things are the way they are. People are the way they are. Okay. Now deal with that. That's the way, you know, our reality works is that all those people out there are making their free will choices. Some of them are making very poor choices. Some ugly stuff happens and you cannot control that because you don't, you're not the, the master that can override everyone's free will. You have to let other people be who they are. Now, you don't have to like it, and you can work to change their minds and give them information or guidance or whatever you can so that they might choose better, but you are not in charge of them. You are only in charge of yourself, and this idea that because this is such a horrible world we live in, in other words, there's a lot of ugly things going on. Well, there's a lot of beautiful things going on, but let's just focus on the ugly things now because that's what people tend to focus on. We kind of look right over the beautiful things going on and kind of just get wrapped up around the ugly things. Those ugly things are there because people have low quality of consciousness and they're making poor choices. There's nothing that you or anybody else can do about that. They're the only ones that can do that. Now, we can pass laws that uh, require them, you know, to not make those choices, okay? And we do that sometimes. That's what most of our criminal law is. It, it keeps people from doing things that otherwise they might do uh, with their free will uh, under penalty of some sort of punishment. You know, they get put in jail or something else happens to them. So we can do that, but that doesn't actually raise the quality of consciousness any. That's just a, another um you know, layer of fear in the sense that people don't do ugly things because they're afraid to. Well, that may be a civilizing fear in that case, but it doesn't help people grow up. It helps people act better, but not necessarily be better. All right, now, so the idea that you have this great empathy for animals, uh, some people also have great empathy for other human beings. Um, there's a lot of suffering human beings on this planet as well as suffering animals, and both are abhorrent. One is just as ugly as the other. 
that uh, we might do that to each other. But to be in pain, <clears throat> in constant pain over it, and to be in a in a real sad, depressed state over it, and very upset by it, that means your ego is attached to it. So that's the first issue I'd like to say. That means your ego is attached to it. It's not the way you want it, and it just you're not able to accept that that is the way it is and then do what you can to help change that if there's anything you can do. Well, sometimes the best thing you can do is just be a good example. Try to help educate others. You know, be an advocate for your point of view. Well, you can do that, but you can't force others to change. You can legislate their behavior, but they won't grow up. And until they grow up, you're still going to have that ugliness in the world. So you need to be able to find joy and satisfaction and spend time with the good things, the joyous things, the beautiful things that are going on. And you can accept that too. So the ugly stuff is there, but don't let it pull you down. Don't let it dominate your life. Don't focus your whole existence around the ugly stuff. Otherwise, you'll just be a miserable, unhappy person all the time, which actually makes you a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. So first thing is understand what you can't control. That's not part of your free will. Let it be. Work to change the things you'd like to change. But you have to do that with the idea that you can't force anybody to change themselves. All right, now back to the thing about what I talked about with the children. What that many of the viewers here probably don't know what you were talking about. What that was about is if there are children or animals or any consciousness that is suffering some kind of a, uh, a horrible experience that is just going to end probably in their death or at least uh, is going to uh, create a lot of fear in them, a lot of trauma in them. Okay. We're talking about conscious critters, including humans. Well, if there's too much consciousness going through trauma, if there's too much of that, uh, horrible things going on in a person's mind, that affects them. It affects the consciousness. It tends to make them withdraw. It tends to make them insecure. So the system in order to minimize that, tends to step in and replace those characters with an NPC, often just temporarily. Okay. In other words, uh, I think I made that comment first when there was some parents who had like five or six children and they tortured all their children. They'd burn them with their cigarettes. They'd, uh, you know, they wouldn't feed them. They just did all kinds of horrible things to these kids. Okay, and somebody asked me, how could the system, you know, allow that to go on? Well, one, the system isn't playing with these pet people and arranging them and making them think and do what he wants them to do. There's free will. Some people are just ugly people. And it doesn't interfere with people's free will. Your free will is sacred. If the system doesn't like what you're doing, it's not going to come in and just run over you. Okay, and it's not going to run over them either. You have to let those kinds of ugly choices play out the way the people are making the choices with their free will. But what the system can do is take those particular children 
who were in pain and suffering and replace those with an NPC. In other words, he plays those children themselves. So that IUOC, that individuated unit of consciousness that is playing that child doesn't have to experience all of that pain that is prolonged that those kids I think were suffering for, for years. So they didn't have to suffer all that. Otherwise you'd end up with a damaged consciousness that might take another 20, you know, lifetimes just trying to get over that trauma. You see, so that's not profitable for the system. And it'll do that just the same for a, you know, for a groundhog or a, or a fox or a cow as it would for a person. It's just not productive to allow that sort of suffering that would cause that kind of damage to a consciousness to go on. So those children were really not there. Their bodies were there. They may have spoken and, and reacted and so on, but the consciousness, their IUOC, was not being traumatized. That's just a general way that the system will work in order to help the whole system grow up. That way, the nasty things that negative things do don't cause damage that goes on for a very long time. That doesn't mean they can't cause any damage. It's just that it, it's when it gets to this point of being excessive, then the system tends to step in in those cases. Okay, and it's that's true of any consciousness. It's also true if you fall off a high building, you know, or if you jump off a 10-story building, you will lose consciousness before you hit the ground. You will not experience splatting and, uh, you know, the excruciating, uh, you know, pain or impact or whatever. You'll just lose consciousness before you hit. Because in that situation, the situation's terminal and there is no advantage to the system in helping you grow up to have you experience the splat. So you exit before that happens, and that's true of all horrific things. Be that animals in a in a fight, you know, if you get a, a small critter cornered by a bunch of uh, angry wolves, the same thing happens. When you get to the end game, that entity just disappears before it gets really painful, really ugly. They disappear in the sense that they're no longer experiencing all of that. Okay. So, um, you know, after I said that, I had somebody could go up on the board that, uh, offered a, a comment that they had, they were a skydiver. I think part of some skydiving team, their parachute didn't open and they, fell until within they got, I guess, that last several, uh, you know, tens of seconds, and they just lost consciousness and found themselves out of body, watching their body go to the ground. And that was their experience. But then, for some reason, the chute did jiggle itself loose and came open, and they landed hard, but it didn't kill them. They did all right. It opened in those last three seconds. So the guy wrote in and said, you know, yeah, it works like that. Here's what happened to me. And he explained that. So that is, uh, is a common thing. It's the way the system works. So there's two things here that the system will do that for a, for a cow or a chipmunk cornered by foxes or whatever else. It'll also do that for people because it's not good to let consciousness get so wadded up in a fearful experience that it damages it. 
Okay. Secondly, you need to get your ego unconnected to this ugliness. As long as your ego is wrapped around it, as long as you have fear in the mix, then it will upset you. It will dominate your life. You'll be unhappy. You'll probably get depressed. And it takes you out of the position of being part of the solution and makes you part of the problem. You're now kind of beset with, with uh, unhappiness and, and uh, negativity and anger. And all of that is part of the problem, not part of the solution. You have to let people be how they are. However ugly they are, you can't change them. Forcing them to change by law works sometimes, but it doesn't help them grow up, which means it just makes them more careful about not getting caught. So in any case, that's my, uh, that's my answer to that question. I took a little extra time with that because it's an area I just mentioned once, and I don't think I ever mentioned it again, and probably most people hadn't heard about it, so I thought this was a good time to elaborate a little bit on on how that works. Have you ever noticed those insects that get caught in your light fixture? And you might see a, an insect gets caught in your light fixture, like a, maybe a cockroach drops down in the little glass bowl you have around your light bulb on the ceiling, and they're stuck in there, and you can see them in there, and they're trying to get out. Or maybe they're caught in a sink or something, and they're trying to get out, but they can't because it's too slick. So they try for about 10, 15 minutes, and then they die. Why did they die? They didn't starve to death. They didn't wear themselves out. They're in a hopeless situation where there is no end other than death because they're, nobody's going to go in and save them. They're just stuck and they're going to die. And instead of dying slowly with a lot of unpleasantness, they just die because they're in that kind of a situation. They're just gone. Okay. Well, so it works at all levels of consciousness not just for those little children that I discussed. It's just the nature of our reality. So when things get really, really painful and ugly, the system will replace you. Again, maybe only for a short time. And play that itself. So the, the, the system experiences that ugliness, not you. That's extremely interesting. And also the fact that there's an evidential statement to back up what you said is also very interesting. Our next question is from Robert A.C. on psychics. Why are some people born with psychic abilities? And he refers to the psychic twins. Of course, there's many examples. Is it because they evolved a lot in the previous life? Or is it a happy genetic incident that loosens the constraints of their brain on their consciousness? Could be. Either one or other things as well. You know, that's only two choices. It could be both of those. They may be uh, uh, an entity that's been around a lot, that's evolved quite a bit, has a low quality of consciousness. They may have a system that is particularly, uh, um, you know, their, their biology just happened to be such that it has less constraints to connecting with the larger uh, conscious system. Uh, and... The larger conscious system may be using them as an example to help other people wake up. 
as well as well as themselves. So the system does all sorts of things that will help others wake up, things that that help others see that reality is bigger than just the physical. And the system may just be doing that. Or those those uh, individuals that seem to have this advantage, perhaps they were ones that complained last time as they were getting ready for their next incarnation, is that, you know, the only thing wrong, the only reason why they didn't do really, really good was that they just didn't have any of the abilities to see the bigger picture. And they were stuck, and that's unfair, and it's not right. And if they just weren't stuck like that, they could have done great, and, you know, on and on and on, which is a big ego trip. But the system may have said, okay, well, if you think that that is the difference, then we'll just start you this time with an advantage in that and see how easy that makes it for you. And, of course, you'll find out that it doesn't make it easy at all. That doesn't have anything to do with growing up. And uh, that then would be a good object lesson for them to have that advantage and realize that growing up is still just as hard as it was before. They still have to change themselves. It's about them becoming something else, not about what you can do, but what you are. So it could be those are four reasons that that might happen. And it could be any one of them or it could be a combination of any of them. Okay, Tom, the second part of that question um, is, is it okay for the LCS if someone makes a living from his or her psychic healing abilities? Sure, that's okay. It's not what you do that has moral uh, consequences, moral judgment in it. It's not what you do. It's, it's why you do it. It's your intent. So if what you intend to do with your, with your abilities is help people, and heal them, but of course you have to pay rent, put gas in the car and eat as well, and you get some payment back for doing that, then there is no problem with that. If on the opposite extreme, you can, uh, say, use your mind to heal people, but you find people who are really desperate and you charge them an outrageous amount of money for you to work on them, um, you know, you, you go looking for sick rich people say, and you charge them outrageous amount of money to heal them, then that's something a little different. You see, that shows some greed and some bad attitude on your part. Or if you use your intent because you have this ability to make people ill and then charge them money to heal them, well, that's even worse. Now you're playing a, you know, a confidence game, you know, uh, it's, uh, uh, that would be even a, a lower quality of consciousness. So it, it's not the doing, it's not the healing uh, and getting paid for it, but it's the motivation behind it. Getting paid is not a is not a problem. You know, having resources is not a negative. You know, there was a there was a, an old uh, story in the, that the Sufis told, and I'll I'll summarize it to just a sentence or two, and that is. Uh, a, a master who had who had um, devotees took his devotees to see his master. So they saw the master's master, but and the master's master was wealthy, had servants, lived in an opulent uh, home, waited on by many servants. And as, when they left, the devotees of their master said, "Well, how is that possible? How could your master, who is wiser than all of us, uh, live 
with all this wealth? And the master told them, says, he can live in wealth because he cares nothing for wealth. And we must live in poverty because we care nothing for poverty. So if, if having wealth wraps around your ego and has you, uh, you know, de-evolving, then you need to live in poverty because you care nothing for poverty, you see. But if you care nothing for wealth, then the wealth is irrelevant. It's just there. So wealth is not an evil thing. It just is part of your circumstance. And you can take that wealth and use it to help people, to, you know, to get, uh, you know, to be part of the solution with that wealth. So I guess that's the answer to your question is, yes, you can charge to heal people um, if that's your business. I know any number of people who do that. Um, you know, the person I do an interview with every uh, last Tuesday in the month was Laura Houston. You know, she helps people. And uh, so does uh, April Hanna, who um, uh, I've done some videos with. But those are very caring people. And that's their business. That's how they live. They're very caring people. Uh, I have never charged anybody for healing. I've worked on probably thousands of people in healing, and I've never asked for a dime for it. For me, that's not my business. I can support myself other ways. I don't need to ask for money for that. For me, it's just a gift. It has nothing to do with I'll do this because you give me money. I don't need that. So I don't ever ask. So it just depends on the individual and their intent. All right, Tom, thank you. And there's a third part to the question. Is there a virtual reality where everybody has psychic abilities? And will we humans reach that point one day? Well, I'd say that um, we humans may well reach that point someday. You see, this this growing up thing as you get a bigger picture and are able to to uh, kind of integrate with the larger system to where you're not just a being here in this physical reality, but you're a being in this physical reality and some of the non-physical reality. I mean, you live in a larger reality than just the physical all the time. It's the way you live. Well, that's basically what you're asking about. You know, can you be in a, can you, can you get to a point where, your your mind and your connections through consciousness, what we see from this reality is the non-physical stuff, is integrated well with the physical stuff to the point that maybe the physical stuff isn't really all that important. It's just maybe a nice background or a nice game to play in or a nice park to take a walk in. And uh, you, don't, uh, you don't have the same needs that you used to have in the physical world. Well, yes, that is possible. And will we get there one day? Maybe if we all grow up, you know, we have this rule about the science certainty principle where psi things need to reside where they are uncertain. So there's there's a, a certain plausible deniability about them. Well, that's just there because of the lack of of quality in our environment, in our, you know, in our collective consciousness here in this virtual reality trainer. When we all grow up, or if we were all to grow up, I should put it that way, then that science certainty principle would start to relax and eventually probably go away. There would be no uh, constraint like that to uh, make it uh, have a 
probable deniability or a possible deniability. You wouldn't need that. The society would be grown up enough to deal with those things, to deal with that larger knowledge. So, yes, it's uh, it's possible. I've been places where there are people living that that um, do not have a physical reality like we have a physical reality. They have social connections. They have, uh, you know, population, but it's not really physical. It's not, there's not a lot of physicalness to it. Um, they have, they have bodies seemingly and they interact in certain ways, but, but the physical part of their, their environment is, you know, sort of like in a dream, sort of like a dream, uh, reality where the physical part is there sort of, but it's not really a major thing. Well, that's because their rule set is not that tight of a rule set. It doesn't describe every little interaction and its consequences like our rule set does and there's people who live in those kinds of realities but if we just look at realities that are physical like ours seems to be physical that is have a real tight rule set to where every every um action you know has its equation everything that happens has its uh has its reason uh, in the physical process somewhere at least it seems that way. Everything objective seems to have a physical process behind it. And everything then has consequences and interactions with everybody else. And that kind of a rule set, I've not seen places, I've not been places that were mostly mental. I suspect people who are mostly mental graduate out of the need of all that physicality and they go to other kinds of realms that don't have all that physical process because that physical process is what creates the interactions and the challenges to grow up. And if everybody were reasonably grown up, you wouldn't need that sort of process to grow up. That's kind of it more at the beginning level, not necessarily at the higher level. So uh, realities like ours that are very physical, they I've never seen one that was mostly um people dealing in the non-physical. All right, and on to the next question. That's one of our previous questions. Are aging, illness, and death a necessary part of the rule sets of every virtual reality? Um, yes. Um, you know, but that's all relative. You know, when we say, I say aging, yes, um, is important and growing old and dying is important in our reality, particularly because we have a tendency in our, in our lifetime of our avatar here to kind of paint ourselves into a corner. Okay. Where we, we have our beliefs and we're not going to change them. That's what we believe. You know, it's like, that's my story and I'm going to stick to it. And when we get into that corner, we're no longer open for growing up. We, we have that been there, done that feeling about everything. And we're, our change, our rate of growth gets very, very slow. Okay. So that's why it's good for our avatar to die. And we get to start over without all that bias, without all those beliefs, without all those things that frightened us, without all that, that situation that uh, kind of put us in the corner. We get to start over with something else, an entirely new situation. And if we then take that new situation and 
paint ourselves in a corner again, well, we get to try again. And it looks like uh, for us now that around a, you know, somewhere between like 80 and 100 years is kind of our lifespan, or maybe 70 and 100 years is our lifespan. And there's a few people that go to 120, you know, and a lot of them die before, you know, they get to 70. But that seems to be about right for us. That's about when we get stuck. Now, maybe we could get to a point where the average lifespan was 200 years. Maybe, in which case we'd need to be still have our minds open, still be uh, out there doing and experimenting and learning and growing and, you know, kind of mixing it up with other people, being engaged. You know, we'd need to stay engaged probably right up to that 200th year or somewhere close where we probably would get ourselves painted into a corner again and need to recycle. So I'm not saying that this lifespan we have right now is something fundamental about it. It's not. You go back farther enough in our in our history, and humans only live to be about 35 years old. If you, if you were older than 35, you were one of the really old ones because life was such a dangerous place. And, you know, so we've gone from 35 to something more like, uh, you know, 75 to 80 now. And that's been because mostly of medicines and our ability to, you know, uh, not die from bacterial infections and intervention by by modern medicine keeps us alive. We also, you know, don't live in the rain, you know, live in uh, mud houses. You know, we have a lot more uh, comforts from our environment. Doesn't take near the wear and tear on us that it used to, and neither does our our lifestyle. Our lifestyle is a much kinder and gentler and gives us a lot more free time than we we had in those days as well. So yes, we live longer, but there's probably going to be some limit where you grow old and die unless the system would see that the avatars were just constantly growing constantly improving themselves. They just kept getting better and better and better and didn't get asymptotic, didn't get to where their growth rate slowed down. And then there'd be no point in them starting over. At that point, let them keep going if they're making progress that way. That wouldn't be a problem. Um, There would be, uh, you know, the birth rate in that kind of a situation would have to be very small. You couldn't keep having... You know, the births have to somewhere near equal the deaths. Otherwise, you have population growth, which can't go on forever. So there's a lot of things for the system to juggle there. But people could get a lot old, be a lot older. It kind of depends on what we need. Do we need to terminate and start over? Is that is that a good thing or not? See, that keeps stirring the pot. That gives us a whole new set of experiences, a whole new set of choices. Instead of having the same old set of choices over and over again, and we keep doing the same things, and, you know, we're in an environment now that's very stable, and we just keep making the same choices over and over, there's not a lot of growth in that. So you start over, you get a whole new set of choices and a whole new perspective, and that then gives us a much higher growth rate. So that tends to be, you know, the way this works. And the other thing is that, this virtual reality evolved and we people are just what happened to evolve. We're animals that evolved here and these animals have lifespans. You know, bones get brittle. 
The system doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't seem to design us to go on forever. So there'll be some limitation to what the biology is going to be able to support. Now, perhaps our science can overcome biology, you know, can do genetic engineering and get rid of those things that, that, uh, where our body tends to degrade with, with time. But, you know, maybe not. That's just still pie in the sky as far as science goes. It's not, uh, obviously something we're about to do. So how that works out, hard to say. But if we ended up getting dead-ended and he's making the same kind of choices in the same way over and over again, then I would think there would be something that would help us drop that avatar and start with a fresh new set of interesting, challenging choices. Just exactly what that would be, I don't know. You know, but uh, the system isn't going to just let us hang around wasting our time because we can. And I don't think we would want to do that. If we grow up enough, then we wouldn't want to do that either. Right. Thank you, Tom. Our next question is, are your children interested in My Big Toe and meditation? And do they do they do out-of-body experiences, remote viewing, healing? And did you teach them or just leave them on their own? Well, all, I have four children, two girls, two boys. In general, when uh, I homeschooled my children, and my big toe, the trilogy, was on the reading list. So they had no choice but to read all three of those books. And at that age, they were somewhere between about 15 and 17, I guess, when they were you know, going through that. I didn't try to make them read it when they were 10. That wouldn't have been <laughs> very good idea. But somewhere between 15, say, and 17, you know, they they needed to read those books. Well, my girls weren't very interested. They struggled with it, weren't uh, terribly interested in it at all. Um, just mildly curious, I guess. But to them, the philosophy of the nature of reality just wasn't nearly as important to them in their life at that age as teenagers than boys. Boys were a lot more important, and their friends, their social circle, you know, the their girl gangs, uh, whatever it was they were into at the time, were just much more interesting than the nature of reality. To my boys, that wasn't the case. They got interested. They did learn to meditate in their own style. They did learn to uh, use their intent to do a few things, but in general, I took the last choice you mentioned, I just let them be. I exposed them to the material, and then I would answer questions if they had them, but I didn't encourage them. I didn't require it other than just reading the book because it was a good book to open discussions on life and what's important and that sort of thing, which ought to be a part of any child's education. So that was the, that was the tool for bringing up those, those discussions. But other than that, after they'd read the book and we'd talked it, uh, to the end, then they were just left on their own to follow their own interest. Right now, neither of my boys are regular meditators, but they both are aware of the larger dimension to reality and, and, uh, I guess use it as, as necessary. It's not a big part of their life, but it's a part of their life. They're busy. 
with other things. My one son is just, uh, he's a lawyer. He just got out of law school a couple, about a year ago. He just got a job. He's got two little children, a wife, and he has plenty to do other than, uh, you know, meditate and think about the nature of reality. And my other son is older. He is almost 50. And uh, he is now thinking about retirement. But he also has a has a small child and a wife uh, and a busy job and a one-hour commute to work and back out in, in the uh, L.A., Southern California area. So he has a lot to keep him busy as well. So it's not the major part of my children's life. Uh, I should say that um, all of my children had come to at least one of my events, one of my talks, workshops. Uh, I had a son come to one of the intensives that I did uh, about a year ago. So they're still aware and involved on the periphery, but it's not a major part of their life, which is just fine with me. It's just where it should be for them. Thanks, Tom. Uh, the next question is, have you heard about the math genius, Srinivasa Ramajan? What do you think of him and who used to receive gorgeous math formulas during his sleep? He said it was a goddess who uh, induced these images for him. And he, he's just asking, um, you probably may not know about him. He's asking what your opinion is of this sort of thing. Well, this fellow must be a mathematician. Otherwise, only mathematicians could call equations gorgeous. <laughs> uh, nobody else would have that adjective talking about equations. So he's either a mathematician or a physicist, one or the other. Um, yes, the when the, when the um, yogi says that he gets this from the goddess, then that is his tool set. That is his metaphor for what happens, for for the source and how he gets them. And he no doubt gets them within that metaphor, which is the metaphor he reports. Okay, so don't take those sorts of things too literally, even though to the experiencer, they seem quite literal. That's the experiencer's experience. They experience that metaphor for the, for the, uh, the, the data stream that they're getting. Okay, now why would they do that? Well, it could be, I can think of one of um, two reasons. One, because they're very interested in math and gorgeous mathematics and gorgeous <laughs> equations, they uh, have an intent to get that sort of information. And with patience, they could develop an ability to do just that. And they may end up with solutions to problems you know, solve outstanding, say, mathematical uh, uh, proofs that are otherwise unsolved, they may get those sort of answers. And uh, that could be one uh, possibility. Another possibility could be, as I said before, the larger consciousness system likes to, prov likes to produce these unusual things that happen to unusual people just to help the rest of us wake up a little and realize that our reality is stranger than we thought. So yes, you may have little boys who are, you know, eight years old who can tell you all about their life when they were a pilot in World War One. 
even right down to the name of the pilot and the plane that was flown and where he got shot down and all that sort of thing. So you can have all sorts of things that happen. You know, what did you mention? Twins that were born psychic or whatever. Lots of these things happen and they're just scattered all around throughout the world, all in all the cultures, just there as things to help wake us up for us to see things that are unexplainable. Because when we see things that are unexplainable, it helps us realize there's more to this reality than just the objective physical world. So it could be that the system gives this this guy who sees equations as beautiful uh, and gorgeous. He just gives them some beautiful, gorgeous equations just so everybody else can look and think, gee, how does he do that? What do you mean a goddess gives them to him? Does goddess a mathematician too? You know, so it just wakes people up. It makes them think in terms of the physical isn't the only thing going on out there. There is more. So it could just be that. Thank you. That sort of reminds me of how Mozart downloaded and had in his mind all of his music. Um, that I could attribute the adjective gorgeous too, but that's that's sort of a phenomenon, maybe similar to that. Um, the the questioner asks, uh, goes on to say, could this mathematician Srinivasa have access to database? He's asking, are there, is there a database containing the mathematical formulas that govern our virtual reality? Um, um, I don't know of them in a database. Obviously, they exist in the knowledge exists. After all, the rule set is its probability, but it's also the fundamental rules and rule set are mathematical. That's why our reality is easy, so easily described by mathematics. The rule set is mathematical. It's also logical. It has if-then statements and there's other things in it, but it's largely uh, about equations and math. That's how you generate a virtual reality. The folks that make the Sims had some, had a lot of math people in there. You know, you have to do the math in order to get those things to work, in order to get the, the, the pictures, the data stream to uh, be the way you want it, to represent these physical things in the virtual reality. All of that is very math-based and logic-based. So, yes, uh, that kind of information is there. I've never run into a database that says database of the equations in the, you know, in the rule set. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, I doubt that that exists because I can't think of any particular um, need that the system would have for it. But the information is there, whether it's in a database or not. The information is there and could be given to whomever the system would like to give it to. But they can only give it to somebody who knows how to ask. And knows how to receive. You know, if you if you study people who came up with really big ideas and are and are good inventors and come up with new uh, things that nobody's thought of before, you'll find that a whole lot of them do that in their heads. A whole lot of them get get inspiration. These ideas, the solutions, just pop into their head. You know, in a dream or while they're meditating. Well, they don't call it meditating. While they're just sitting there, letting their mind roam free. Often people get such things, and it's not just inventors and, and scientists, but authors who are writing books and, and creating stories. Often the stories come to them 
you know, they call it inspiration. They just got an inspiration. Well, that means they just got some data in their data stream that put things together for them, that gave them a plot, that uh, gave them a solution. So a lot of people get things from the great beyond. You know, it's kind of mysterious, but we call that intuition and inspiration. It's really just collecting information that's available in the database because you want it, because you're thinking about it, because you have an intent. You need it. And if you're not in that state of wanting it, needing it, and thinking about it, and also put yourself in a being-level state of being open to receive the information, then you get it. But you don't get it, you know, while you're, you know, water skiing. You know, it's not the way it does. You're busy then. You don't get it while you're doing something, playing checkers, unless you can just let your mind drift, you know, during that game or something. But people get that when they sit down, are quiet, and let their mind loose. In other words, get their intellect to be quiet. Just deal with things on an intuitive level, and then these inspirations often come. But if you're not in a position to be having that intent, asking and having that being level intuition ready to accept, then you won't get it. You won't get that kind of inspiration. Thank you. The next question is from Mary. My question is about fear and how to best overcome it when the fear is caused by events that happened when I was too young to remember. It's so clear to me that this fear is holding me back, but I just can't find escape from it. There are moments when I see a bigger picture, but these moments are few and far between. Okay. Um, you have fear, but you were too young to remember it, so you don't really know what the fear is. I assume you just have fear. You know you have fear, but you can't place it on anything. Well, that's okay. The ingredient that you need most is courage. So when you get to that place where the fear makes you cringe or the fear makes you not reach out or the fear makes you go hide, the fear makes you quiet or the fear makes you angry or whatever the fear is doing to you and you're aware of that because you obviously know you have fear, then you have to have the courage to just tell yourself, no, I won't be that way. Not that I won't act that way, but I won't be that way. So let's say you're afraid to, you know, trust you're afraid to meet new people or you can't trust people well when you get to that point where there's a option for you to get closer to somebody but it requires trust and instead you withdraw well you catch yourself and say no i won't be that way i will trust and then instead of cringing and going away you move forward you go into that relationship or that connection and you will see that eventually that fear will go away, that trust will grow, and you'll get over it. But it takes the courage to not react to the fear, to let the fear go. And that's what I mean by letting the fear go. The fear comes up and says, run away, run away. This is dangerous. Don't get involved here. And instead, you get involved anyway. And you take the next step after that step and take the next step after that step. So if you have courage to not react to your fear, you will eventually get rid of your fear. Now, the 
kind of the, the tough side of this is that once your fear sees that you are not paying attention to it, that you are denying the, you're not denying the fear, that you're overcoming the fear, that you're denying its hold on you, that you're letting go of that, the fear will start to get uglier. The fear will start to growl louder. The fear will start to puff up and look even more scary than it did before because the fear doesn't want you to let go. The fear doesn't want to be thrown out. So expect that when you force yourself with courage to say, no, I'm not going to wince. I'm going to stand up and deal with this. Well, you don't be surprised if this, in the next week or two, you know, things happen and that fear roars up even bigger and uglier and more menacing than ever. And you just have to say, no, I'm not going to be that way and go on. So it takes courage. Courage is the key element of getting rid of fear. And you, you won't have that courage unless you really have a strong being level intent to get rid of the fear. It's that strong being level intent that creates the courage. I really want to do this. I don't want to keep reacting to that fear. Well, that's a strong being level intent. Hopefully it's being level. It's not just intellectual. If it's intellectual, you'll cave in very quickly. If it's a being level, you'll be strong. And you will be able to walk away from your fear. But it's not going to be quick. The first 10 tries you make probably won't end well. But you just keep doing it. Have the courage to keep on going. Eventually, you'll start seeing success. The fear will start getting less and less, and then it goes away, and it's gone, and you will have that weight off your shoulders forever. Thank you. Uh, one more question from the MBT forum users. Actually, there's a couple more that we have left over. Can you give someone an experience of an encounter with the LCS? I can describe an experience with an encounter with the LCS, but I can't give somebody that. Uh, that experience with the LCS is um, something they have to get from the LCS. So, no, I can't give that. Now, I could go into somebody's mind and give them the thoughts and the feelings and the attitudes. I could pass that on to them, but it wouldn't be the same. That would be different. The, uh, what I'm taking as the, as the connection to the LCS is that, is that, uh, experience where you kind of merge with the larger system, where you and it are one, you become one with everything, where you feel complete and total love, and you're a part of that love. You're a part of every blade of grass and every leaf on every tree. You're aware of everything and you are a part of it all. And you have that sense and the the tranquility, the peace, and mostly the quality and the amount of love that you feel is just overwhelming. And you lose your individuality in that. You don't say, oh, I'm Tom Campbell or I'm Joe Jones and I'm feeling this. You just feel it. You're not Joe Jones or Tom Campbell anymore. You're just a part of everything. You're a piece of love connected to everything and everybody. And that is an experience you can have. It's, it's kind of what I call getting up close and personal with the larger consciousness system. 
That's an experience you can have. It's often a life-changing experience. It's sometimes the experience people have in NDEs. Some of the NDEs end up with that. Not all of them, probably a small percentage of them, but that's one of the things they can they can get there. The system shows them what the bigger picture is really all about. Um, you can have that experience if you intend to connect with the larger conscious system. Ask the system that you want to you want to experience it. What is this larger conscious system? And you know what is it? I want to experience this oneness. And if you do that, and you're, you're, again, you're at the being level, not from the intellect. It's not a wish you're making. It's, it's something at the being level. Then if you're ready for that, that will happen. But the system has to give that to you for it to be a genuine life changing experience. If I tried to give it to you, it would just be a shadow of that. Or if I just tried to describe it as I just did, yeah, that sounds nifty, but it's not at all the same as having the experience, but it's not a rare experience. There are, you know, thousands of people who've had this experience, many thousands of people. It's part of the, if part of what, um, the Indian, um, Hindus and Buddhists too refer to as nirvana. When you're in that state of bliss, of being one with everything. So it's not a, you know, it's not like this is impossible for only the very few. Everybody can experience this. It's not a, it's not something that takes you 20 years. You just have to, Open yourself to it and request it and basically, uh, you know, be, be ready for it. And then you can, you can experience it. Often when I teach my immersives, there will be one or two, sometimes three people out of say 40 or 50 that will experience this in each immersive. Some immersives will have two or three people. Sometimes maybe, you know, just one. Rarely do we have none who, who uh, experience that. So that's just in a group of people together. So it's not like a impossible thing. You just have to be in the right mindset, have the right attitude, get into that being level, and then have the intent to experience the system. All right, thank you. The next question is on dark matter, which you've spoken about before. I don't want to leave any of the nuances of the question out, so I'm going to read the whole question. I recently watched a video of Tom being asked about dark matter, to which he replied that it was being made up by physicists who make their equations still work, to make their equations still work and keep materialism alive. Although I agree that most physicists are materialists, I don't agree with Tom's seemingly total dismissal of dark matter as a measured phenomenon. There are plenty of examples of gravity being measured in the universe with no physical cause seemingly present. The most convincing of which to me is that the stars and planets and other matter in galaxies do not produce enough gravity to keep galaxies together in the way we observe them. So dark matter is just a name given to whatever is producing this extra gravity that does allow the galaxies to stay together. From a My Big Toe perspective, it is not more likely that when the rule set for this simulation was first developed... Is it not more likely that when this, when the rule set for this simulation was first being developed, the dark matter was added in as a rule by the system to keep galaxies together as previous runnings of the universe had resulted in stars splitting off from each other after formation as the gravity wasn't enough to keep them together? The same explanation 
could be used to explain dark energy, which is the name given to the seemingly invisible force that is causing the universe to expand at an ever-accelerating rate. Again, this could be added in after earlier tests had shown that after the Big Bang, the gravity of everything created meant that it all attracted together again and had nothing had time to evolve. So this invisible dark energy was added to prevent that. They are just made dark to prevent them from interacting with all the matter as they didn't want any interference with the stars and planets, etc. I'd be interested to hear your views or alternate ideas on this. Okay. Actually, uh, this person who writes that, and I don't have any disagreement about uh, about what he's talking about. We We do agree. It's just the terms that we use that are a little different. I would agree, you know, if you if you look at say dark matter as as whatever that thing is, this is trying to quote him, it's not exactly what he said, but whatever that thing is that keeps those galaxies spinning um like they you know like they do, even though the gravity that we see from the visible stars and so on isn't enough to do it. So there's this other invisible force that is keeping that working and we call that dark matter. And couldn't that be part of the rule set? Well, I agree completely. Uh, it is a part of the rule set. It's part of the rule set because that rule was needed to keep the universe uh, coherent and uh, long lasting enough to, you know, evolve us. So it's part of the requirements for stability of the simulation. And yes, indeed, it's a part of the rule set. So no, no problem there. What I don't do and what this, this guy asking the question has kind of, uh, has kind of done is that because it's a part of the rule set doesn't mean that there's something physical there doing it. You see, that is my, that's really the difference. And the way I said it, I said, Oh, well, they're just making things up. You know, they're making up forces because their equations don't work. Okay. The galaxies don't hold together right. So they just say, well, there's some invisible magic force that is doing this. Well, they don't say magic because physicists never use the word magic, but it's about the same thing. There's some force we don't understand and don't know what it is, why it is, and it is keeping the galaxies together. All right. I have no problem with that. That is part of the rule set. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there is a physical thing there in this physical reality that is doing that. You see, same with the with the dark energy. The dark energy is is that extra energy that keeps the universe expanding. Actually, the expansion is accelerating. Why is it accelerating? Well, there's no good reason for that. Okay, now I would say it's just part of the rule set. It's easy to make a system of space expand. You just let the X, Y, and Z coordinates constantly get longer. You see, it's an equation. I can uh, write an equation of a sphere, you know, R squared equals X squared plus Y squared plus Z squared. That's a sphere. And I can put that in a do loop in a, in a small laptop computer that's just a little do loop that says every time you pass through this do loop, I want you to put a cube on that, that equation. I want the, I want all the, uh, I want the X, Y, and Z to all go up by a cube of what they were last time or a tenth power of what they were last time. 
So every millisecond, it goes through this loop. Those X, Y, and Z go up by a power of 10. Geez, in less than a minute, I can have a thing that's larger than our whole physical universe, bigger than our whole physical universe in the computer. Computed, right? And I can let it go on for a couple of hours. I can have things that are millions of times bigger than our physical universe, right up until the point the computer can no longer deal with the exponent. And then I'll go to double precision and quadra precision to where it can deal with a, you know, with an exponent to the, you know, to the 500 power or something, which is much bigger than our universe. So it's easy to make a universe expand and expand with acceleration. It's just a few simple equations. I mean, you can do that. Any programmer could make that happen in, you know, three lines of code, four lines of code. It's just easy. We don't have to posit some physical, can't see it, can't smell it, can't weigh it, you know, this invisible physical stuff that's doing it. That's the part that I say is just a physicist's habit. They need some physical quantity to go in that equation because they are materialists, so they make one up. There's no need to make up something. All you have to say is what this, this fellow said. Just say that there is a force that is causing this expansion. There is a force that's holding those galaxies together. We don't know what it is. All right, now that I'd salute and say, yep, that's good physics, that's good science. But to say, oh, that force is created by a different kind of matter. It's physical, just like everything else. We just can't see it. We'll call it dark matter. And that acceleration is some unknown invisible energy. You see, if when you make up physical things and give them the, uh, make them the reason why this happens, that's just not necessarily true. Now, one day, maybe we will find a physical thing there that is doing that. There may be some way that this dark energy or this dark matter will actually not be so dark that we'll be able to to uh, measure it. And in that case, I'm all in favor of saying, here's that dark energy and here's what it is and here's where it comes from and let's use that. But right now, we don't know. All we know is that there's a force that causes these things to happen. So instead of jumping to the conclusion that it must be something physical doing it, let's just say it's part of the rule set and that's the way it works. That's the way the rules have to be in order for our universe to be long-lived, to be stable, and to offer up the kind of environment that was needed to evolve it into a useful entropy reduction trainer and just leave it at that. So instead of, const instead of making up physical things just because you don't know, because you believe that everything must be physical, that's the part I object to, and that's what I was kind of, you know, pulling the chain of the scientists by saying that <laughs> they just need something physical to stick in there to make their equations work. So that was my point. Actually, I don't disagree with the guy who wrote this question at all. They are just attributes of the rule set. That's it. And at this point, to say they're physical is stating more than we know. Let's just say they're there, and maybe we'll find out more about it later. Or maybe we won't.
it may be just one of those little fixes the system had to put into this this rule set in order to make it work. All right, thank you. Uh, one last question from our leftover questions. This one is from Claudio. And Claudio says, the sun broadcasts information in all directions. EM radiations, including photons. Our dreams are more efficient virtual realities. We can just think of the sun and it appears. It starts from the observer asking a question. If NPMR starts from the object observed sending information out that can sometimes reach an observer. Have you seen more efficient virtual realities using this concept, information starting from the observer? Do you agree that this is this way is more efficient than PMR? And do you know why PMR wasn't done starting from observers instead of from virtual objects sending information out? Okay, I think there's a little confusion here, Claudio. Um, what we have is, of course, a virtual reality. The sun is a virtual sun, and that virtual sun, according to the rule set, is sending out energy, okay, in the form of particles, photons, protons, all kinds of things. You know, they call it the solar wind. You can actually make a big sailing ship up in space where you put out a big uh, something large that, uh, that reflects that solar wind and that solar wind can blow you through space just like the, the physical wind would blow sailor ships through space. So yes, there are a lot of particles being given out there, but those particles are all virtual particles. The whole reality is just exists in the minds of the players. There is no sun. There are no particles. There's just a rule set producing data, and the players get a data stream. Okay, so that's what's going on. Now, because this reality has a very tight rule set where all of the uh, energy interactions, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, metabolism in a cell or whatever, all of the all of the energetic interactions are defined by this rule set. What that does is makes this reality very interactive. We do things and we affect them and they affect us and we affect others and others affect us. The sun affects us and we can, you know, we could uh, maybe affect the sun if we could steer some big mass, you know, asteroid into it, to, you know, maybe, uh, uh, make it wobble just a little bit for a while. Not much because the sun's so massive compared to anything else we've got around, but, uh, still, it's, it's, it's possible that there are, uh, you know, everything's interactive with everything else. And that's just according to the rule set. That's the kind of reality this is. It's a tight rule set that describes all the energy exchanges and that makes it very interactive. That makes that gives us ca causality. We have physical causality here in this objective world. Everything that happens happens for some reason. It's got some cause. That's because of the tight rule set. Okay, now you go to say a dream reality where you can just think up a sun. 
Well, it's easy thinking up suns. I think up suns all the time. It's one of the one of the tools that I use when I heal people. I'll just kind of reach out into outer space, grab a sun, bring it right into the body where that dark spot is I'm trying to heal, and just put that sun right in there and just let it generate, you know, bright white light forever for a long time. It just sits in there and burns and blazes to lighten up that dark area. It's just a metaphor, right? I create that sun. That's what you're talking about. I'm the creator now. I create a sun and I give it those properties because in my mind, in my set of metaphors that orders my reality, a sun has certain characteristics. One of them is it's a dynamo of energy and it's very bright. You see, and what I'm trying to do is energize that black spot and turn it white. So I put in a white hot sun. So that's in my reality where I'm healing. If I'm dreaming, I might dream that there's a sun. It's not that that's more efficient. It's just that now in the dream reality and in my reality where I'm healing, we don't have a tight rule set. This is not a a, a real tight rule set. Things are done differently here. Every interaction is not computed. Things don't necessarily all affect each other. (coughs) So it's just a different virtual reality it's not that one is more efficient yes it's much more efficient to uh, create a dream reality uh, you know around a single player most dream realities are are single player games the consciousness is getting a data stream from the larger consciousness system that defines what it calls the dream often that the data stream it gets from the lcs is a, is a set of dreaming uh, um, interactions that give that entity some choices to make that help it grow up, you see. So now you've gone from a multiplayer game here in this physical universe where we're all interacting with each other to mostly a single-player game where you're just interacting with the computer. Or maybe there's you meet somebody in your dreams and there's two of you interacting with the computer. But it's not the same, it's not the same game. It doesn't have to compute all the interactions from all the things that are being done. And you get to make the sun if you want. You get to manifest things in your reality. So it's not like that is a more efficient way to run a virtual reality. That's the way you run a, a, uh, virtual reality with a very loose rule set. The way you have to run a virtual reality with a very tight rule set is by calculating all the interactions of everything. It's just, that's what a rule set means. You got more rules, you got a lot of calculations to do. You got few rules, then uh, you don't. So it's not that there's a fundamental way of approaching virtual reality that is more efficient and that same kind of approach that they do in dreams or when I'm healing would be a lot more efficient if the physical world were that way. Well, the physical world can't be defined that way. The physical world's defined with a more detailed rule set. So that's that seems to be the the problem there. It, it's maybe we're comparing apples to oranges uh, in your maybe you're comparing apples to oranges in that in that, that thing. But yes, you can make suns and those suns can have attributes. Um, but running a, a single player game between you and the LCS as opposed to running a multiple 
uh, a multiplayer game with seven and a half billion people is just a different animal altogether. One of them is, is uh, very detailed in all of its interactions. There are, the, the rule set sends us data that describes that solar wind. It sends us data that describes, you know, the, the ultraviolet rays we get that tan our skin. The rule set just sends that to us. It's not that we have skin and that it gets tan. We have virtual skin on a, on an avatar. Okay. The rule set lets that skin get tan because of those particles coming from the sun. It's not uh, that the sun is somehow communicating to the skin. It's just a rule set that calculates if the sun is shining, the skin will get red or the skin will turn brown. So it does. The only causality in a virtual reality is the rule set. There is no other causality. The physical causality is all computed, is all is how the rule set looks in the game. 